Welcome, Jason Cook, to the podcast. What's going on? It's great to see you, man. You too, brother. I feel like uh, our paths cross rarely in the summertime. Man, it's crazy. I've never been at a church where summertime's so transient. Yeah, yeah. But it's good, though. I mean, I just had a baby. You know you that. You did. Congratulations. Thank you. Papa. Thank you. Number four. Number four. So uh, No sleep. Yeah. I don't even know what we're going to talk about today. Ugh, let's talk about you, brother. <laughs> How no, are you feeling This today? is not that kind of podcast. You don't get to turn it around like that. All right? How are you feeling? You play by my rules. Are you sleeping? How many diapers <laughs> did you change? Oh, man. The, in the past two hours? Mm. Zero. Because I've been here. Praise God. Working slash resting. Praise God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Work slash rest. Yeah, yeah. Man, but when you get home today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. I'll be in it. So, okay. This is my opportunity because I know I've been wanting to ask you this question for a long time. Okay. So, for fair disclosure, for listeners, Jason Cook and I have been friends for a while. Yes. Maybe about a year. Yes. How long have you been on staff fellowship? Uh, 14 months. All right. So we've been friends for 14 months. Yes, we have. I was one of your first conversations. You Happy friends anniversary. Yeah. I, I essentially brought you here. You were instrumental. <laughs> God brought us here, but you were instrumental in getting us here. Yes, you were. Well, thank you. We'll always have Mud Island, Seth. Okay. So I got to ask, right? You have actually scored a touchdown in the NFL. Correct. All right. So you lived your whole life in a football mentality. More or less. Right? Dedicated to the game. Yes. Right. So then you get to a point where you decide to hang up the cleats. Yes. Why? Walk well, me through that decision. Yeah. So, it, well, the decision became, uh, started at 13. So when I was 13, I knew God called me into ministry. Ran from it. Didn't want anything to do with it. At 13? Dude, look. I, I was you. sitting there. Check this out. So I was sitting there. My parents, we just moved from Birmingham to Atlanta. We started going to Creflo Dollars Church. I'm sitting there at 13 years old. What's that like? Um, another conversation for another time. But here's <laughs> what. But God used that man and God used that church to call me in the ministry. I remember sitting there at 13, and I remember thinking to myself as I'm sitting there, there was this really visceral internal prompting that began to happen to me that was something like, Jason, you're going to do that one day. And then my visceral reaction was, no, I'm not. And I was immediately terrified and fearful. So for the next seven years, I ran away from it. Didn't want anything to do with it. Done with it, getting to college, and I'm just trying to play ball, bro. And uh, by the time I got to the league, from the time I got the phone call on draft day, the Lord began to strip away that idol. And when I got – Who called you? um, That day it was the offensive coordinator, Cam Cameron, called me. From? From Baltimore, from the Baltimore Ravens. And uh, he said, hey, uh, do you want to be a Raven? I said, yeah. I'd been in conversations <laughs> earlier in the day with um, a couple of other support staff. But it was it – was With the Ravens? With the Ravens. They had one pick left in the sixth round, and they were either going to take me or they were going to take another uh, defensive back. And they decided to, to push me to – signed me as a free agent, so I was a preferred free agent. I was one of the first phone calls they made. Very rarely do free agents get uh, signing bonuses, and I got a signing bonus. It wasn't very much at all. It was enough to – it was probably a month's salary. It was like league minimum 200 k No, it was like a month's salary for most average Americans, so it wasn't that much. Okay. It wasn't that much. But it was symbolic, right? So I get to Baltimore, and, you know, you got Ray Lewis, you got Ed Reed, Joe Flacco, Tavares Gooden. You're in the room with them? Ray Lewis. Uh, Ray Rice, rather. Oh, in the room, in the locker room, in meetings, all the whole nine. And I remember being up there and being so caught up my whole life in the mystique of the NFL. And then actually being there, it was a bit of a letdown. And the Lord just began to slowly. In what way? It's, it's, uh, it's much more business-like. It's dog-eat-dog. Um, you think it's cooler than what it's going to be, and it's not. I mean, it was pretty cool. I'm, don't don't get me don't get me wrong. Playing in the NFL is a high high honor, and it's something that very few people get a chance to do. And so I'm here, and I'm I'm counting my blessings. But the whole time I'm there, it's almost as if I feel like I should be doing something else. And and this is crazy. The whole time. The whole time. And this is crazy because nobody, very few people, go to the league and say. Hey man, yeah, I'm here, but uh, I really should be doing something else. So, but when you got the phone call, were you excited? Were you like, yeah, let's do it? But I'm doing it reluctantly. When I got the phone call, I didn't even want to go to the NFL. Seth, my strength coach was saying he told me he said God's opening a door. You need to run through that door. I was going to go to law school and become a lawyer. And so when I on <laughs> what happened to the whole minister thing? 
Yeah, running still. Still running. You got to be an attorney. Yeah, be a pastor or a preacher? Nah, because all the preachers where I'm from, they were pulpit pimps, right? They were one way in the pulpit. They were completely <laughs> different when they lived uh, like in the real world. But they have really nice suits. They had nice suits and they had nice cars yeah. and, and they said a bunch of fancy words and they were also unfaithful and uh, men of poor character and so on and so forth. And that's not all the, that's not all preachers and pastors, but that was the lot of many that I was seeing in my, in my context. So, so you were deterred by that. Correct. Just the uh I didn't want to be there. Kind of the gross taste it gave you in your mouth. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So when I got the call on draft day, it was kind of like, okay, I guess this is the next thing. It, it's it's kind of like that painful moment when two people have been in a relationship for a really long time and both of them are really bad for each other, but somehow they're like, uh, this is the next step. Codependency? Correct. And so football and I kind of had this relationship. It was like, well, all right, the road's still going. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Why not hop into this thing, try it, and do it to say that I did it, and and then move on with your life? And so when I got the phone call, I was like, okay, it's the next step. I was excited. I was nervous, scared, fearful, but, you know. But you went. But I went. I, I packed up my my Nissan Maxima and drove from mm. Atlanta, Georgia to Classic Baltimore, vehicle. Baltimore, Maryland. And that was the that was the same summer that uh, Eric Benet came out with a new album, and Trey Songs came out with a new album. So the whole time up to Baltimore, I'm bumping those two things and regretting your decision. Um, anxious about my decision. <laughs> And then I get there and I meet the guys and the facility's great and practice starts and I'm coming off a knee injury. So I'm about 85%. I'm not completely healthy. And so I'm doing the best that I can. And I'm grinding, Seth. I was grinding, man. I was like, everything that I do, I, I'm either. Well, you were low tier, right? Um, Meaning like you're a rookie. Yes. You got to prove yourself. Yes. Yeah. You got to come in and make sure people know that you mean business. Cor- uh, yes. Yeah. Business. Business. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's right. And <laughs> and being a rookie in the league is like is uh is a really interesting experience. So a couple of things that happen when you're a rookie in the league. Please. Right? So you first get in, everybody's like they don't even give you a locker. So all the veterans and the people who are on the team have lockers that surround the perimeter of the locker room. Made of gold. Uh, yes, they are gilded, <laughs> gilded, gilded lockers. And and then right in the middle of the locker room, they put all the rookies. So Just like it, on a card table. Correct. Yeah. Like you are in a fishbowl, you're in the middle <laughs> and you still have, you get your, your name, your Jersey, your helmet, all that stuff, but you're in the middle. Right. And, uh, so you're there. Then you have rookie classes, rookie training. Um, and during training camp, you have uh, rookie vetting, if you will. So there's a night where all the veterans call the rookies up, and you have to perform in front of the team. Perform what? Anything. So there were guys who would get up, and one guy reenacted a scene from the movie Friday. Uh, one guy <laughs> got up and sang a song. Uh, one guy got up and told a joke. So each night of- What did you do? So I got up and I rapped the first verse to Lecrae, Send Me, I'll Go. Can you do that for us right now? No. Please. <laughs> I can't because I don't remember the words. All right. Uh, uh, <laughs> next time. Uh, next time, yes. Next time. <laughs> next time. You have to have me back. But I remember standing up there in front of this sea of grown men, millionaires, some of the fiercest people. And I knew that God called me to that team to be a witness faithfully for the gospel. And I had, you know, I didn't cuss and I wasn't drinking. I wasn't partying, but I had an opportunity to make a legitimate statement for the gospel in front of my teammates. And it was terrifying. And I stood up there and I didn't know what to do. And so I just started doing it. And when I first started, Seth, I first started, I think it's, uh, I seen it with my own two to only way I can show you a perfectly poverty-stricken people with no view. And when I started, people started booing. And I'm up there by myself on and an the, island. These aren't just people. This is Ray Lewis. This is this is the team. <laughs> people yeah. start booing. They're like, boo. And so I've got a choice. I can either stop or I can just push through it. So I just kept going. Perfectly poverty-stricken people with no view. And I bet you can't believe this. They never heard of Jesus. Heard of young Buck Lil Wayne and young Jeezy. And I just kept going. Wait, hold on. Didn't like th- it's, 30 it's seconds ago. To come you back. Can... It's muscle memory, man. It's starting to come back. It's starting to come back. And so I just keep pushing through. And as I'm going, people's eyes start to widen. And it's this really eerie feeling because they go from booing me to now they're widening. I mentioned the name. It's like a scene in a movie. Jesus. It really was. 
and I'm up there, and I never get nervous. I'm I'm shaking, man. And uh, you only have to do this one time. One time, just the performance. One time, I had one shot. Okay, one shot. So by the end of it, they weren't booing. By the end of it, they clapped. They clapped, and I got a couple cheers. The next day in the training room, because of that moment, I got to share the gospel with our franchise tag defensive end, Terrence Suggs, in the training room while he was getting his ankles taped. Right? So it was just another cool opportunity. And for no other reason, God allowed me to be there to, to share Jesus with people. And, uh, and How long I, were you there? So I, draft day was in April. Moved to Baltimore end of April, beginning of May. I was there May, June, month off in July. And then there August and part of September. So I was there all through the preseason. And then um, the week before the regular season started, I got cut. Okay. Mm-hmm. Did you consider going to try out for other teams? or No. You were done. Yeah, I got calls from every other team. So my <clears throat> my brother got drafted by the Tennessee Titans. I think we know In the third round. Yeah, yeah, Jared Cook. Yeah. Oakland Raiders, Raider Nation, ride or die. Wait, did uh, he go to the Raiders now? He's with the Raiders, man. Wow. Yeah. He was I in Green it. Bay last year and he's yeah. he's with the Raiders. I'm a Cowboy fan. I hate that guy. Yeah. He he uh he ruined yeah. it. He rained on your parade <laughs> yes, as it were. Okay, so he's a Raider now. <clears throat> he's a Raider, yeah. So man. you got calls from every team? Just about. I got calls <laughs> from uh a ton of teams, Cleveland, Tampa Bay, um uh Tennessee, Seattle, Washington, Saint Louis, um a ton of teams. So my agent's calling me, and he's like, hey, man, um, I know you got cut, and here's who we got on the line. And I tell him, I say, um, I'm not going to say his name, but I say, uh, we'll call him Paul. I said, hey, Paul, I'm done. And there was about a 15-second silence. Are you going to make us do this right now? And I was like, <laughs> no, I thought about it, but I'm not going to. <laughs> and this then is, I was this, like, this is radio. I was like, hey, are you there? Yeah. I was like, "Are you there?" He was like, "Uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm here." What do, you, what do you mean you're done? I was like, hey, "Man, I'm done. God's called me to something else." And how I got there, how I ended up at that point where I walked away from football, was a process culminating in scoring a touchdown in my hometown in front of all my friends and family against the hometown team, the Atlanta Falcons, and it, scoring that touchdown and it being so empty. And it was the, the, the culmination of six to eight months of the Lord tearing down this idol of success, tearing down this idol of affluence, tearing down this idol of um, seeking worldly treasure outside of him. And then I have this moment, and I'm like, man, the only thing that ever satisfies me is Jesus. It's not football. It's Jesus. But So my agent was mad. I had family members who were upset. Um, and Why were they upset? Because they they wanted me to be successful, and it's a once in a it's a once in a lifetime opportunity to get a chance to play in the NFL. And here yeah. I was, and I was turning it down. But it's exactly it's a big deal. It's a big deal. But you know, I, people ask me all the time, "Do you regret it?" And I say, "Not a day in my life." Because I'm every day I wake up now, I'm doing exactly what God is calling me to do. You can talk about vocation, and vocation comes from the Latin word vocar, which means call, right? To call or call name. So when you work a job, you're not necessarily working a vocation. You're just doing some menial task that you have to accomplish in order to live, in order to make money. When you're in a vocation that and a true vocation that you're called to, you don't feel like you work. Dude, I haven't worked since 2009, bro. And for me, like, that is exactly how I see um, the, the trajectory of man to arrive at a place where God wants us to be, which is full dependence, full trust, full rest in him, where work, you know, sometimes when you're working in a vocation, like, work doesn't feel like work. It's a joy. So what about... What about pastoral ministry? I mean, you knew it was your call, right? Mm-hmm. But like, what about it makes you tick? Is it the preaching? Preaching's definitely part of it, right? So preaching is a major part of it. And it's not because I want, I'm this glory hungry egomaniac who wants to be praised all the time, right? Um, for me, being a pastor is about the care and cure of souls. Uh, when I look around the world, I see so much brokenness, man. People broken, just the effects of the world from um, addictions to bad marriages to psychological issues, damages that people have experienced, trauma all across the board. And everybody's trying to find some solution to this trauma that's happened to them. 
And you could try to go a psychology-based uh, way, which works sometimes, uh, but it doesn't. Uh, and you can try to go like, you know, the health and wealth way, or you can try to go, you know, some other way, but they don't offer you a way to explain and make sense of the world. To me, Christianity offers the the greatest explanation of the world that there is outside of any other religion or world system or even science. Christianity offers the best way for us to explain pain and suffering and not only explain it, but Christianity redeems pain and suffering, right? In, in a way that is useful both for this life and the life to come. And so for me as a pastor, I'm looking at broken people, man. God's called me to broken people. And how can I be an agent of help and service to those broken people? So preaching is one of those ways. It's counseling, connecting folks to places all, all across the board, man. I love it. What do you think, though, like the next, I mean, obviously we're, each year seems so much different than the previous one Mm -hmm. these days, Mm -hmm. right? The world's just moving fast. So what do you see as the church becoming in these next five, ten years as it relates to pastoral ministry and specifically preaching in the pulpit, um, cultural engagement? Like, how is all that going to pan out? Yeah. Well, that's a big question. Um, I think the temptation in every generation has always been the temptation to make God's word relevant, right? For God's word to speak in a fresh way to the cultural issues of of the day. There's always the temptation for that. But when we don't need, God's word is always relevant because we serve a timeless savior, right? Hebrews 4, we do not serve a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in every way and yet has remained without sin. Therefore, let us draw boldly, before the throne of grace that we may receive grace and mercy in our time of need. So when I'm looking at that, I see a Christ who is relevant to every person, every situation, and every time, right? So the Bible needs to be heralded and preached unashamedly in its entirety and in its fullness, and it's always going to be relevant. Now, the difficulty comes. Culturally, cultures have had blind spots for a long time. And with the advent of the cell phone camera, with the advent of social media, with the advent of the world shrinking, right? With the click of a button on my phone, I can connect with someone across the world in less than three seconds. With that comes the blind spots of culture that are becoming on display, and when they come on display, those blind spots, blind spots often offend folks from other cultures. Pastors stand at a very unique intersection because pastors uh, have never been able to be those who are absent from culture, nor should they be those who draw and take their cues only from culture. Pastors stand at this unique intersection where they have to both herald the truth of the word of God and at the same time put a voice to cultural issues and not putting a voice to cultural issues speaking to culture directly with, with that's devoid of God's word, but using God's word aimed directly at the culture. All that to say, pastors moving forward are going to have to be more culturally nimble, and they're going to have to be more biblically uh, solid and knowledgeable to be able to take God's word to speak to culture in a loving and winsome way, right? Okay. So all that to say, um, I think pastors are going to have to become um, Swiss Army knives in a way. You can't, you're not going to be able to see a pastor who's just going to be able to preach, and that guy's going to be successful in his local context. That guy's got to be preacher, pastor, counselor. He's got to be community organizer, activist. He's got to be prophet. He's got to be all kinds of things in order for him to reach a growingly secular culture in his context. Unless you live in rural America uh, in one-stop light towns, and those really haven't changed that much in the last 100 years. Okay, but so as you consider the future of pastoral ministry, though, right, have you seen, have you ever seen it kind of backfire the way churches try to culturally engage? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes, yes. Does that question make sense? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think what, what you were saying was that the gospel doesn't need relevance, or Correct. doesn't need us to add something to make it relevant. Correct. Right. Yeah. So, what what, what are the ways that you've seen that the church has done that? Like, gone yeah. overboard in yeah. trying to make the church 
so relevant. You know, so you see, you and what's see, the effect of it? Yeah, so you see churches who who where the church historically has taken stance on certain issues where they balk and they change their mind. Whether you know today this is um, you know sexuality and gender, human rights, so on and so forth. But even it's on down to like the marketing scheme in churches, right? Where a church will market itself as a church, and and there's a sense in which I understand like you know you want people to come to your church. Churches thrive off of the giving of people. That's how us you know we make our money, and and like I get that. But when you're taking out full page ads on billboards and in 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 newspapers that say you know something like you know this is the church for people who don't like church right yeah. or or we are not your grandmama's church right trying to distinguish and separate yourself from in my opinion over two thousand years of history of what the church should be you've got pastors who are trying to be culturally relevant so you'll get it in sermon titles or you'll get it in graphics in Birmingham Alabama. There was one church who wanted to do ministry uh, to uh, women in a strip club. And so this church, I'm not going to name the church, they took out a billboard right in front of the strip club with quotations and with a, a quote on it that said, strip for me, dash Jesus. Oh. Right? Yeah. So so that was their attempt to be culturally relevant cool. to reach <laughs> those strippers, right? Strip for me. I mean, it made it made big headlines and, and and a lot of and a lot of. Hold on, was it like a play on words, or were they actually saying like, "Do that, but do it for me"? I, I'm sure there was there was a bit of a, a play on words, whether it be strip, you know, your life for me, strip your <laughs> sin away from me, whatever. But it's it's the optics, of yeah. it, right? It's a church. Right. That's intentionally, quote unquote, trying to reach a certain group of people to be culturally relevant, but just completely and totally missing the mark. Don't you think, though, like, don't you think young people, right? I think they, well, all people have a radar for authenticity. Sure. So don't you think it becomes almost off putting when the church tries to be a version of what the entertainment or what the cultural climate is that they're experiencing Monday through Saturday. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no doubt, because the church can't compete with Jay-Z and Beyonce from a production standpoint. The church can't uh, compete with One Direction or Katy Perry or, you know, uh, Kendrick Lamar. Yeah, we can't compete from a production standpoint. Now, that's not to say the church should not be excellent in what they do, and if it means that, that you have to incorporate some different elements from production to buttress and support and enhance your worship experience, then I think that's okay. But if you're trying to, you know, you're popping off glitter cannons and you're, you're you know, you got, you know, <laughs> you know, you've got all these. Uh, uh, Is that a thing? That's, that's a thing. That's okay. a thing. Did you see last week there was a church in, I think it was Dallas, that actually shot off fireworks in uh, the building first inside. Baptist, the, yeah, First Baptist in Dallas. I did see that. Yeah. I did see that. As a July 4th celebration. In the building? In the building, yeah. And you've got a conflation of patriotism and Christianity, which for centuries in our country has been, um, to, to put it lightly, a gross misnomer. Uh, gross miscalculation and oversight. Well, you're always saying that America is a Christian nation, aren't you? That is not <laughs> what I've ever said. <laughs> I've never said that because that's not true. Jason Cook, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> what is the danger of that? Like well, the tying da- those two things too closely together. Well, the danger is under being not understanding history, right? So. Uh, the United States of America, yes, the first people to come here, uh, besides those who were indigenous to this country, were seeking religious freedom and asylum. But America was built and constructed by humanists and humanistic thought who included elements of Judeo-Christian uh, principles. Why to, is that wrong? Um, in, in the, I, I'm not saying it's wrong from the standpoint of building a country. I think it's wrong to say that America is a Christian nation because if America was a Christian nation, then it would be a theocracy. It would be a nation where God himself sits on the throne as, as king, as ruler, as, um, as the sole sovereign, but he doesn't. Uh, if America was a Christian nation, then everything that we do would be centered around 
Christ, and that's not true. I think you've got elements of Christianity in there, but the founders from Ben Franklin to Thomas Jefferson to John Hancock, they were humanists. And even if they were quote unquote Christians, they were not Christians in the biblical sense. They were Christians in a a popular sense. So a humanist is a person who's going to take um, the elements of the humanity. So that's, that's mind, body, spirit, liberty, freedom, um, elements that should be indigenous to humankind and they're going to use those to, in an attempt to explain the world, right? So if Christianity offers a meta-narrative, offers a grand narrative to explain the world, the humanist sees the world being explained by natural means and natural phenomenons, not any supernatural phenomenons, right? Christianity is a faith that's built on supernatural phenomenons. So, you know, you've got the humanist who, uh, and the secular humanist, this would include but not withstand, like the atheist, the agnostic. Um, you would you, lump them in with humanists. They would be humanistic, yes, in that they got would it. not be able, they wouldn't have a category for the supernatural. Uh, they would explain away um, any any supernatural phenomenon with a um, kind of natural Phenomenon. Perfect yeah. example. Natural, National Geographic does this deal on the 10 plagues in Egypt. And they go through each one of them and they explain with a natural worldly phenomenon how all that happened. From the Nile turning to blood to the frogs to the flies to the gnats to the darkness to even the death of the firstborn. Right? They go and they explain it all the way using human means. That's, hmm. that's a humanist. So in America, uh, Jesus Christ was not American. Jesus Christ was not a white male. What? Jesus <laughs> Jesus Christ was. Uh, Did you not vet this guy? Was about. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ was about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Only if that life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness was found in Him, right? So whenever you conflate um, those two things together, you get an issue. And with all the baggage, with the formation and the creation of America tied to Christianity from slavery to Japanese people in internment camps to Jim Crow to segregation to civil rights, all of these injustices and gross inhumanities attributed to not only America but to Christians, when you lump them all together, you make them synonymous. Jesus should not be wrapped in an American flag. Jesus doesn't need fireworks. Jesus came as a baby in a manger in a barn a long time ago in Bethlehem. Right? He didn't well, that's come. only because America didn't exist at the time. But also, he didn't come in pomp and circumstance. Jesus came, as we sang in a black church, Jesus, Jesus, oh, what a wonderful child. Jesus. Gee, you heard the song? No. So lowly, meek, and mild. New life, new hope. You ever heard that? No. So keep Jesus going. comes meek and lowly. Yeah. But we present, or some churches present this triumphal Jesus who reflects the very ideals about us that we love the most. And Pull yourself those, up by your bootstraps. That's, that's correct. And those ideals could not, be, A, be farther from biblical truth, but also they don't represent all of Christianity. If there is a truth that is not timeless and there is a gospel that does not work universally, then there are aspects of that truth and aspects of that gospel that are false. Because the gospel works in every zip code. Jesus is relatable in every zip code. And we can't just make this amalgamation of Christ into what we want him to be. Now, let me say that with this. Should we be proud of our country? Yes, I am proud to live in America. I'm proud to be an American. The United States of America is the greatest country on earth. Should we have patriotism? Yes. Should we support our troops? Yes, because there are people who make sacrifices for hundreds of years so that we could sit here freely and make this podcast. So I've got to say that, right? And I need to say that. I want to say that. However, we should not equate Christianity with America because historically, it's not a compelling argument. And biblically, it's not faithful. So Hmm. that's what I would say to that. So as you, well, how long have you been in pastoral ministry? So I've been a pastor since 2012. Has it always been in a multi-ethnic context? No, it okay. has not been. Is fellowship the first multi-ethnic context? It is the f- uh, that I've pastored in, yes. So one of the churches that I helped to plant, we were our aim was to build it into a multi-ethnic fellowship, and we started to see some fruit. We went from 100% white to, by the time I left, we were 90-10, 88-12. 
Okay. Percentage wise. So the 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 barrier the standard that has to come to bear in order for a church to be multi ethnic is that no more than eighty percent of the makeup of the congregation belongs to the majority. So at least twenty percent of that church is minorities. How did you get it from a hundred to eighty eight? Uh, a lot of prayer. But I mean, um, what are, like if somebody is in a church right now of 100% one way or the other, Yeah. how do they take those steps to get down to the 88, to hopefully get down to 80? And It's a big conversation, Seth. You want to have that right now? I don't know. Do you? Do you? Do you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so actually... Um, well, let me ask you another question. Yeah. So you, uh, I want to go back to a tweet you did. Once. Okay. Okay. I know which one. I know so <laughs> you wrote this tweet and uh, you said, in order for racial reconciliation to take place, yes, we have to create space for people to say racist things. Yes. I need you to explain that. Yes. Like, help me, help me understand what you meant by that. Yeah. No, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> so Twitter is not a great medium to communicate anything. That was the first of two tweets. But apparently I can't Twitter correctly and didn't signal that there was another tweet coming behind it to clarify. You didn't put like the parenthesis one over two or whatever? Correct. I didn't right. have enough characters left. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so behind that, I qualified the tweet um, and I said something to the effect of um, uh, in order for us to have those hard conversations, we've got to have those things. Human dignity should never be offended. So human dignity, dignity should never go questioned or challenged without being, um, uh, without being confronted, if you will. So here's what I was saying. What was the, what was the reaction to that tweet? So I, in that tweet, I got called uncle Tom. I got called a house N word. Um, I was told that I was shucking and jiving, uh, for white people. I was called a coon, um, I was called coon of the day. Some people call me coon of the week. A couple weeks after that tweet, I was called coon of the month. Um, memes and gifs of vaudeville and blackface shows were showing up in my, in my timeline and, um, God, and brutal. Yeah, man. And it was, it was a lot. And it was in regards to a very controversial article that the gospel coalition put out. But if I can take a moment to explain that, here's what I mean. Most people live in echo chambers, and most people only spend time around and listen to those who would corroborate their own worldview and those who would only agree with their perspective and opinions, right? So I'm working in a church. One of my churches that I was pastoring was all white. I'm talking 99%, 99.5% white. You were the 0.5? I was the 0.5. And if you were to look at the church, all of, all of these people's friend groups who they worked with, they all looked the same. So there were moments where in the life of that church, people would say racist things to me without ever knowing in their mind they were racist. So to go back earlier to our conversation, every culture has blind spots. There's a way of talking and joking that people have become that's become normative to a lot of folks that they don't even recognize is sinful and racist. And so in those moments, I have a choice. Um, in that moment, when they make a racist comment or joke, my humanity, my dignity is challenged. Now, I can either confront that humanity and that dignity with a bunch of expletives, and I can continue to, to throw shade, as it were, on there and confront that in a very kind of unloving way, or... I can take the time to be a pastor who's a black man, meaning I can point out their error strongly. I can point out their error sternly, but also instruct them in why that's sinful, why that's bad, and how they can take steps forward to not repeat that again, to then question or bring the human dignity of another into question. So the tweet was, if I'm not in these settings, particularly in a multi-ethnic church where people say some stuff all the time, and it's not just toward black people, it's toward whites and Asians and Hispanics and, and those who have Indian descent, if we're not creating a space for people to say racist things or ask racist questions, then what are we doing? You would not believe how many times I've heard, hey, Jason, I've never told anybody this, but my grandfather's, my great-grandfather owned slaves. And I've never told anybody this, but, you know, this happened to me. And these are the sentiments that I have toward black people. And I've never said this to anybody before. How do I get to a point where somebody's open and honest for me in the South 
open and honest with a black man in the South to talk about their own potentially racist tendencies and ideology is because I've created space for them to have trust and there's love there and there's, um, you know, a, a, a lack of fear, if you will, where in the context of that relationship that those racist and prejudiced sentiments can be challenged. So that's what the tweet was about, but I can't say that in 140 characters. So of course I come off looking like, you know, a coon or a house N-word or whatever. You know what the good news is? What's that? We have at least 140 listeners. Praise God. Yeah. So Let's get that message out. Praise God. Praise God. <laughs> Hallelujah. No, I thought the tweet was brilliant, actually, because, I mean, as I think, I'm trying to figure out how to put this right. If you start kind of assessing <clears throat> your, uh, your history through a lens of how have I treated racial reconciliation, how have I taken notice of it, how have mm. I been a part of it? You know, there naturally, as a white man in the United States of America, mm-hmm. I have questions. Yeah, right. And so I thought the tweet was actually pretty brilliant. And maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong, but I thought that in and of itself does create an avenue mm-hmm. through which somebody can ask questions, mm-hmm. rather than like you're saying, descending into their own echo chamber to try and figure it out without actually asking somebody who might have a better experience. Correct of the issue. Correct. So. I mean, it's it was shocking to me that you would get a response. What was the justification? Just that the and I could see where this would come from. That the effort and any sort of um, going out of the way should be on the part of those who have done the wrong. Correct. Yes, and um, that any challenge to the human dignity, particularly of black people, should not be met with any sort of uh, perceived uh, passivity that it should not be met with any perceived uh, lackadaisical attitude, but any challenge to black dignity should be met with force, right? I don't disagree. What do you say, though, to um, the the comments that come out that say, uh, from an African-American perspective, that says, um, <clears throat> like, it sh- it, it's wrong for white people to feel entitled that a black person should explain to them Mm-hmm. you know, what they're going through. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Have you yeah. heard that, right? Oh, yeah. So well, I, let me just say this. Black people aren't a um, um, homogenous people group, right? right. We are, we are uh, so different. Mm-hmm. And each black man and woman thinks for themselves. And culturally, there are some similar- similarities. But at the end of the day, man, we are so different, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I would say is there's a sense in which <clears throat> I hear that and I say, you know what? You're right. I spent my whole life explaining to white people how they should think and act around black folks. And I've spent my whole life trying to educate black or white people on how to not say racist things or not touch my daughter's hair or not rub my head like I'm your pet. And I'm just tired and I'm frustrated. Um, and you know what? Like, no, I'm not going to do this work for you. You need to do the work for yourself. I hear that. I resonate with that. I sympathize with that. Um, There's also a sense in which um, if that brother or sister is a Christian, there's a sense in which the burden of their racial education, I still bear and maintain part of it. So I do think there's a sense in which they need to do the hard work. But if every black person vacates the space where they say, you go and figure it out in yourself, we're not helping you. And all white people are doing is, again, talking in an echo chamber Uh, where they're never going to have their worldview challenged, then how are we ever going to get anywhere? So what we need is we need intrepid brothers and sisters, both black, white, Hispanic, and Asian, to step into these spaces and say, I'm willing to, Galatians 6, 1 and 2, I'm willing to bear the burden with you for a long distance, this heavy load for a long distance. I'm willing to consider others better than myself. I'm willing to speak the truth in love. And I'm willing to bear with you so that we all can be better. Um, And it's those pioneers, it's those intrepid black people who often get labeled as, you know, um, derogatory terms for what a black person should be. Nowadays, these are oftentimes black people who get labeled as being in the sunken place as made popular by the film Get Out. But they're also the ones who in 20 years, 
the church is going to look very different because they did not leave tough spaces, but they labored and they educated and they taught faithfully and selflessly. And I think those are the people who make our churches better. And those are the folks that we find in a church like ours in a multi-ethnic church that even though they've had their human dignity confronted and challenged in some ways, through the years, this church has been educated on how to love our neighbor and how to care for our neighbor and seek the human flourishing and the welfare of our neighbor. And so our church now, 13 years later, looks very different from it than it did year one. And in 20 years, it's going to continue to look different because that kind of education is happening here. So do you think <clears throat> that what, what's your take on like multi-ethnic ministry? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you said, you know, black people aren't a homogenous group. Correct. Right? I mean, we've had this conversation numerous times where I am more culturally like you than a lot of white people. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Um, so the the multi-ethnic movement, mm-hmm. as it moves forward, right, do you see – there's two things here. One is multi-ethnic. One is multicultural. Mm-hmm. Do you find that one is more difficult than the other? Yes. And which one? Multiculturalism is much more difficult. Um, <clears throat> so can you be multi-ethnic – and not be multicultural. Yes, you can. Okay. And in fact, one of the reasons most churches strive to be multi-ethnic before they begin to be multicultural is because multi-ethnic has a much lower threshold than multiculturalism. So being multi-ethnic is much easier than it is to be multicultural. The problem is we haven't had many of either one of those churches in our country, particularly in the South. So in order to be uh, multicultural, or I would prefer uh, the labeling of a cross-cultural church, because multicultural (laughs) implies that you've got many cultures there, but there's not much community happening. And so I prefer the term cross-cultural or trans-cultural church, right? Where there's an intersection of cultures, and those cultures are are greatly enriching one another that are there. So multi-ethnicism is the, the lowest burden, if you will, but it's also incredibly difficult. So you try to get different colored people in a room, different races, quote unquote, in a room. That's difficult, bro. So many different histories. So many different histories, so many different preferences, so many different ways of living that just to get those different people in a room is tough. So while we would socioeconomically have a very probably similar, if not the same socioeconomic culture, Right. We're different ethnicities. Right. So we might be when it comes to culture, similar or the same, but we're different ethnicities. Right. Right. Now, the church in heaven boasts of of uh, different ethnicities and races and socioeconomic backgrounds and generations and all in gender and all these other things. But the church is in a process to look like. Heaven. So the church is itself. We are personally in a sanctifying process. The church is in a sanctifying process. I think the first step to being in that sanctifying process is becoming multi-ethnic, the process of looking like the church in heaven. Um, so, yes, there's a difference between multi-ethnicism and cross-culturalism. So do you see multi-ethnicism as a stepping stone to multiculturalism? Yes, absolutely. So how do you make the second leap? So I think time. I think time happens, and then I think intentionality are huge steps. So One of the things that I love about the black church is that the black church was not just a theological center and it wasn't just a place of instruction, though it was that and or is that rather. And the the black church is not only a place to gather on Sunday mornings, even though it is that it's not only that the church traditionally black church has been all sorts of things. It's been church. It's been community center. It's been counseling center. It's been the organizing place for activism. It is the central hub of the community, right? In modern times, that's changed a little bit, but for the most part, it's the same. If you look in our city, you can't do effective ministry to minorities without having a robust uh, ministry to the poor. You just can't do it. Mm. And so the leap that you take is when you begin to take intentional steps to do ministry with the poor. And I think that is where your church becomes cross-cultural. If you're a middle-class to affluent church, legitimate ministry to the poor that's not paternalistic. Meaning? Meaning that uh, um, I am better or I have all this money and you just need my help because you're just (laughs) struggling and you just need so much help. Well, you poor thing. Yeah. And so that's paternalism. And not... 
uh, a kind of aid that's enabling people to stay on the um, kind of aid of, of churches. So ultimately, the church's role in ministry to the poor is to move people from uh, dependency to self-sufficiency. And I think as you move people along that spectrum, that's when you begin to see the the cross-cultural aspect of the church. Also, there's some cross-cultural aspect racially, right, when you've got, um, you know, again, again, again. So just speaking in crude generalities, um, the, to borrow a reference from um, a predecessor of mine here at this church, there's a difference between Ice Cube and Carlton Banks. Right. So even though they might be the same race, they're different cultures. So even if those two people were to sit down, if Carlton Banks and Ice Cube were to sit down and have dinner, you've got the same ethnicity, but you've got different cultures represented. Right. So there's already some of that that's going to naturally happen in a multi-ethnic church. But cross-cultural churches take the leap, I think, personally, when socioeconomically they begin to do real, legitimate, healthy ministry to the poor. Um, and that's the element that I think is lost a lot in many churches that goes beyond just benevolence and it goes into welcoming those men and women, those brothers and sisters into our body. Dude, good stuff. I know you got to go, but I want to have like a part two at some point to this. Well, I got time. Well, what do you mean? I've got time. Right now? Yeah. My call got pushed to 1230. Oh, look at that. I meant to tell you that earlier. How about that? You should have told me that. I've been trying to rush through this. I'm like, I would have drawn that out. We can still <laughs> we can still have part two, but I think one thing that I would like to ask you. Mm-hmm. So, fourteen months you've been mm-hmm. on the ground, multi ethnic context. Yeah, right. So, if let's say somebody is listening and wants to venture into multi ethnic ministry, like what are the top three challenges that they can expect to face? Like, what yeah. are the three hardest things that you've experienced in twelve and fourteen months of? Are, are we talking about a church building to be multi-ethnic or an existing multi-ethnic church? Well, or both. Maybe both. So okay. if, so, if somebody, let's say, somebody's considering joining a multi-ethnic church movement. Yes. Or, yeah, what can they expect? Like, because from the outside, looking in, it's mm-hmm. very attractive. Yes, it is. Right? You, yes. I mean, it, yes, yes. It looks so culturally nice and, mm-hmm. you know, I want to be a part of that. But as somebody who's been in it for 14 months, yeah, it's hard. Yes. So very. what are those? It's not all like just kumbaya. No. You know, sitting and we're all family. It's it's not always like that. Sometimes yeah. there are difficulties. What are those things they can expect? Yeah. So I think the first thing that you'll realize in a multi-ethnic church is your preferences will be questioned, and you will have moments of uh, and periods of being uncomfortable. I think comfort is the greatest enemy both to spiritual growth and personal growth in friendships and in business. It's being uncomfortable. It's a feeling of being uncomfortable. Lou Holtz actually famously said the greatest enemy to his football team was not another team, and it wasn't uh, a lack of programs or strength training. He said the greatest enemy to his teams was uncomfortable. their fear of being uncomfortable. So you can come to our church, you go to a multi-ethnic church, and a good one, We'll have moments where black people will be able to stand up and shout yes and amen, where the minor- where any minority in that church will be able to be able to shout up, stand up and shout yes and amen, and the majority in the church will be able to stand up and shout yes and amen. But there are moments where there will be silence because it will be very uncomfortable, yep. and there's going to be kind of that panicked looking around, like what is going on, right? <laughs> so, so at no point in a worship service should everyone feel equally comfortable until there is a culture built in that local congregation that is particular to that congregation where minorities and majority alike will be able to uh, enjoy um, that that uh, worship experience. Yeah. I would say the second thing is, uh, aside from preferences, is it is still difficult to have cross-ethnic relationships in a multi-ethnic church without being intentional. Hmm. because you're still going to naturally gravitate toward the people who look like you and talk like you and go to the same schools. If you know you homeschool or you private school or public school kids, those people still tend to congregate to with one another. So unless you're intentional in that way, um, then, um, then it's going to be difficult. So even beyond just attending a multi-ethnic church, it takes a pretty significant level of intentionality on the 
person attending. Yes. To engage those relationships. And it's going to take intentionality on the part of the church to actually create space for people to connect across those lines. So, I mean, just Fellowship Memphis, one of the things they did early on was they actually assigned small groups to people to ensure uh, racial, generational, and socioeconomic overlap and diversity in a group. So even the church, I think, bears some weight of responsibility <laughs> for that. Um, and I think the third thing, just recently in, in our own uh, country's history is it makes talking about politics very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and the political climate in life of, of today is, is far more tenuous and difficult than ever. So, you know, in a, in a <clears throat> homogenous church, you tend to have people who vote alike and you might have a few stray Republicans or a few stray Democrats or a few stray independents, or maybe the odd rare libertarian who might be president present, um, Gary, but yeah, 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 that's right. But for the most part, people v- who worship together, they vote together. In a multi ethnic church, that could be not that couldn't be farther from the case. <laughs> so I can't, in a lot of ways, as a pastor, treat Republicans different than Democrats, because there are Republicans who have very solid biblical reasoning for why they voted the way they voted in this past election. And there are Democrats who have very solid biblical reasons for why they voted, for how they voted in this election. And it makes loving your neighbor so much more difficult, especially when you feel like a vote for the other party is an offense to your person. Mm -hmm. That's right. And that has made ministry in the multi-ethnic context so difficult. Um, And while we are folks who are not run by political allegiance, we are people who feel and as a pastor, it's difficult to navigate the waters of legitimizing the feelings that people have while also calling them to a higher standard than the world would call them to. Um, should we call out racial superiority and white supremacy or even black superiority and black supremacy? Yes. Should we call out the unbiblical and faithless uh, kind of endeavors of politicians who seek to make laws that are either not biblical or unjust. We must do that. But we must also still be loving our brother along the way. And in a multi-ethnic context, when you sit next to uh, a person who voted for Trump and then a person who voted for Hillary and then somebody in the middle who voted for Evan McMillan and you're worshiping together every week, then that that's difficult. And so I would say if you're in a multi-ethnic context, then be ready to have every worldview and preference that you've ever had challenged in a really good way, uh, ultimately so that Christ might be exemplified and glorified in the local context of our folks. Man, I think, man, I think we're just scratching the surface of this stuff. <laughs> yes, we are. So I would like to do a part two. Okay. I think it's needed. Part D. Part D. Let's do but it. But you're always traveling. You're like you're crazy in the summer. Yeah, man. Well, God's God's entrusted to me this really crazy preaching ministry, man. And I love it and I hate it at the same time. I wish I could spend time during the summer times. And, you know, yesterday we were at the pool and just good to just be at the pool with the family and not have anything to do. But with toddlers, man, that's good for you? Oh, man, it's awesome. Great. Because cool. they swim and they get tired and then they sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, but... Uh, you know, we're heading out of town tonight. You know, we'll be in town a little bit next week. Next week we head uh, to Chattanooga uh, for a week to preach at camp and here for a couple of weeks. And then I'll be in Philadelphia preaching at camp for a week. And so, um, man, God's doing some awesome stuff. He's calling young people from death to life and um, transferring them from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of, the, of his marvelous son, as Colossians 1 says. But it's also tough for the family. And so uh, we'll get part two in sometime. Oh, we definitely will. We got to. And I think. For those that are listening, it'll be coming soon. Hopefully. Because, yeah. I, I mean, I've got a ton of questions. But anyway, I'm going to let you go. All right. Jason Cook, everybody, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, brother.